more topical things dealing with areas of scripture where we have not been in a while. And today I'm going to talk about something that's become a buzzword for busybodies. But before I get there, um, for many of you may not know this, but I, I play competitive eight and nine ball. And I have been for a little bit over a year. I played for a long, long time, then didn't play for 20 years, and then I've started back. And so our team did very, very well, and we played in a world qualifier yesterday and got knocked out in the third round, but that's okay. So no Vegas for me this year. That's all right. That's all right. Um, but there's something that I was reminded of yesterday as I spent those bajillion hours standing there watching people shoot is that we're an arrogant bunch of folks. And very, there, there are some humble players, you know, there are some humble athletes, there are some humble experts in a lot of fields, but if you really listen carefully, you'll, you'll see that there's this, there's this centerpiece of pride amongst us that sometimes we know we know we know we're good, right? We know that we're good in some things. We, and, 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 and a lot of times we might not even notice it. And that doesn't just go for athleticism. I mean, I'm a chess player. I, I've, I've walked around with chess players before who bump their foreheads on a 10-foot ceiling because, I mean, they just, you know, can play in their minds. I mean, these are smart people. I've known people who are able to recall things, words, just listening to them, hundreds of characters, hundreds of phrases, hundreds of numbers, perfectly, hearing them for the first time and never forget them. And in the midst of that, I'm like, why am I here? I forgot why I came, you know? But yet, there have been things in my life that I have been extremely prideful about. And there have been many things in my life that I've been proud of. And there's a huge difference between the two. A huge difference. We often in our Christian circles contemplate humility as not being good or not having skills or not, you know, being honest about the fact that we are doing well in some areas, because we're self-deprecating to, I believe, to mental, <laughs> toward poor mental health. I believe toward fear. I believe we're self-deprecating so much in Christian culture that we walk around just a day away from flogging ourselves to make us feel better. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The New Testament does not instruct us for that. The New Testament gives us a healthy dose of knowing the difference between Good pride and bad pride. And how humility and pride go hand in hand. It is okay to say, you know what, I excel at that. And as a believer, thanks be to God. Just like the book of James, he says, listen, don't say that you're going to go here and do that and make a business and make a profit. Even though you're good enough to do it, and you probably will, don't dare say, I will go do. Say, if the Lord wills. So even when you're good, even if you are able to take it home, like I told my team last night, it wasn't meant to be. I get home and go in. I'm glad I don't have to go now. You know, you're excited that you're thinking, oh, gosh, do we really want to spend five days in the West? <laughs> $17 hamburgers. I mean, you know, you, you just don't. There's always a trade-off. But it wasn't meant to be. It's not meant to be even if we're good enough sometimes. And so what I want to do is I'm going to walk through like a 20-point idea about what the Scripture teaches regarding pride. 
And I'll start off with several passages of Scripture in 2 Corinthians and in the book of James. And I'm going to end up going into Proverbs and some other places. But I want you to get the essence of this. Because I want you to understand it's okay to be proud of things. It's okay to have personal self-worth. It's okay to say, I am a child of the king. It's okay to say, I'm part of a royal priesthood. It's okay to say, I'm a forgiven saint. Not, I'm a sinner. Are you sinners? Yes. According to the scripture, absolutely. Forever and always. Are we counted as such? No. Then why do we call ourselves that? Because we look at what we do in life and we look at the intrinsic reality of our, of our nature. And we know that even when we're doing good, sometimes we're a little bit arrogant over it. We know that even when we're trying our best, we want credit. Sometimes when we do a whole lot of service for others, we get a little bitter and resentful because people aren't noticing it. Sometimes when we have needs that aren't being met, instead of saying, hey, I need something, we just get all upset because nobody can read our minds. But there's a difference in pride that is rooted in self-exaltation and arrogance and haughtiness, which I believe stands as a hindrance to our spiritual growth and our ability to experience the fullness of grace given to us by the Lord. But there is a type of pride also that is healthy for the believer. So let's look at some of these passages. 2 Corinthians 12. I'm not going to linger here. You can go there. I'm not going to linger here long. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5 and 9. Verse 5 says, On behalf of this man I will boast. But on my own behalf I will not boast except for my weaknesses. And he continues there in verse 9. He says, but he said to me, this is Jesus. He says, I pray that the Lord would remove this thorn in my flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, Christ speaking, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul speaking now, I will boast all the more. I will have pride all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Earlier in this text, he even uses the word pride. He says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you in chapter 7, verse 4. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overwhelming with joy. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. This is a text a lot of people don't understand, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's one of these gospel nuggets of the apostle james this is the gospel perfectly stated in the instruction he says let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich boast in his humiliation now think about that for a second and i know we started that several years ago midweek and one day i will finish the teaching of the letter of james but here we see that there are two types of pride, just in these little examples. There's the pride and the allure and the deceptiveness of pride. The deceptiveness of pride that the proverb says, pride goes before destruction. And haughtiness, a haughty spirit before a fall. And I'm publishing an article this week about that. And some of you have heard the story when I was restoring my house. And the door frames are not all straight. You know, it's 120 plus years old. And nothing fits anywhere. Nothing's square. The word square, the house just shakes. Ooh, you know, you, nothing's plumb. And so I was 
setting my back door, squeak, bind, squeak, bind, shave, shimmy, jimmy, jimmy, and I like two hours, and I'm going, I just step away from it, and I leave, and I come back, and I get it, and I push the door to with my left hand, and it swings so perfectly, balance, it goes, click, I'm like, oh, it shut, I mean, it's like exhilarating, I feel it now, like this, my spine's tingling, it's so amazing, and I shut it again, and it clicked, and I step back to look at my awesome work, and I step right through the HVAC open hole, all the way to my thigh. Pride comes before the fall, you know? <laughs> Look at my rock. I mean, you know. <laughs> so I have firsthand experience and an object lesson to that. So read it, if you will, on Friday. Pride comes before the fall. It's deceptive. Pride seduces us. It's like a magician. It's always promising something. Look over here. Oh, it's not there. Psych, it's in your ear. I mean, you know, it's always trying to get something for us to look at something in a different way. Pride seduces us with the illusion of self-sufficiency and the illusion of superiority. So now we're seeing the negative side of pride. Pride that is self-sufficient. Pride that is superior. Pride that is haughty. It blinds us to our need for grace. It blinds us to our need for interdependence, for healthy relationships. It blinds us for our need for the Lord. It leads us then to prioritize our desires and our passions and our goals and our achievements above the Lord and above others, distorting our perspective and causing us to fall into holes, to stumble, to hurt. The scripture says that it's deceptive and it's alluring. But the scripture then teaches also the humbling message. James says in chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and he quotes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about really in our own lives, in your own mind, what it means to be humble before the Lord? <clears throat> I think that's everything to do with recognizing our station and recognizing his love. But yet, and I'll get there toward the end of this message as an application, there is a very easy opportunity for us to feel haughty and prideful even in our spiritual humility. So just because we exude spiritual humility, just because we have an opportunity to be present with the Lord in our spiritual growth and understanding sound doctrine, which is extremely vital and of utmost importance, it does not give us the opportunity, nor does it give us the license, nor the credibility, nor the authority. Let me think of anything else I can bring there to stand in a place of haughtiness and pride. We are no better than anyone else because we have understood the truth. Because, beloved, like I've said many times over, no matter what truth we've come to, no matter what truth the Bible actually teaches us, our inferences, our application, and our logical conclusions, even if valid, can often be misleading. And even if they are absolutely accurate, prudent, and profitable, we cannot bind one another's conscience to these things. Because the Word of God says this, therefore this, therefore that, therefore this, and then all of a sudden, ta-da, illusion. You see? And I'm not knocking it. That's part of the Christian life. We are to walk through life contemplating and thinking and growing and understanding, okay, so if this is true according to the scripture, then this implication is also good and true. That's great, but we test those things, and we don't ever stand so arrogantly to think that we couldn't be wrong. 
You see the point? And it's very rampant in our world today. It's very rampant in my life. Things that I've always had disdain for, that I've subtly and unconsciously looked at and like turned my proverbial nose up going, oh, I'm glad I don't do that. I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I don't think that. Never has my mind spoken it to my consciousness. But yet I've discovered it, being more mindful, having my mind renewed by the word of God over and over again and fighting the flesh and learning to be in the present with the gospel has allowed me to hear things that my mind never let loose. And that's the spiritual side of living in the flesh. It's part of it. That's one of the reasons that we are so enamored with, with experience as a culture. So that's why we're so enamored with emotions. Because our emotions rule us and it, they drive us to feel something that's bigger than us. We think they're spiritual, but all it is is really the chemical reactions of our mind flowing with the innate sinfulness of our, of our, of our being and then giving us all sorts of outcomes. These are not accurate outcomes. These are not accurate conclusions. And that's why it's very easy for people to, to have charisma and to set the mood and to set the atmosphere and to present an argument in such a way that literally has no teeth whatsoever, just draws us into a place to the precipice of, of, of this emotional tension and then all it takes is just the touch. You ever seen a bubble like, like, like blow, get bigger and bigger on the top of a, of a thing of water or a child blowing bubbles and it just gets bigger and bigger and then, you know, that jerk kid comes up and pops it. <laughs> it runs you like, I want to kick you in the hiney. I mean, that's where we are sometimes in our lives. We just have this bubble and... All it takes is somebody to pop it. All it takes is the right charismatic person to come along and push you right over the edge. And then, you know what? You've gone there. We go there. And then we're done. And then we'll believe all manner of instruction that flows from that. And then we begin, begin to become prideful in it. The message of Scripture says God opposes the proud. Part of getting of the grace that comes to the, the humble is that we recognize our insufficiency in recognizing our pride. Scripture reminds us that through it, through the word, we find wisdom and guidance to resist the allure of pride and embrace the virtue of humility. And we know the model of our humility. We know the example of Christ. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. You know it. Have this mind among you. Which Paul then says is yours. Is yours. It belongs to you. It is yours in Christ Jesus. It is ours. Though Christ who though he was in the form of God. He did not count. Equality with God. Something to be made much of. Something to be grasped. Something to be presented. Jesus did not present himself and posture himself as the divine God of the cosmos. He postured himself as a son of a man. And really, he was the son of a virgin. A human being. 
but he was the God of the cosmos. He created his own body. Boy, what would we do differently if we could create our own bodies? Do a little tummy tuck here, a little bit of some, you know, whatever. I mean, it's crazy, right? But Jesus emptied himself. This is the example. This is the mind that we're supposed to have. Emptied himself. But Jesus didn't empty himself to self-deprecation. You see the difference? Jesus never lost the pride of his station. He was not just the son of man. He was the son of God. And if we are the sons and daughters of God, if we are the brothers and sisters of Christ, and we are to share in his glory, there needs to be a heaviness that carries on our shoulders related to that truth. That I think because of the grace of God that bestows upon us his righteousness and that position, we walk in a proud humility. There's a positive side of pride. So we can let go of prideful ambitions and embrace the mindset of selflessness and service. What did Jesus do? Being found in human form, perishable form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. It wasn't just dying. It wasn't just being martyred and murdered. It was being the innocent, perfect son of God and being subjected to the claim of being a common maggot. A criminal worthy to die like that. Sometimes it, sometimes it took days to die. So we need to discern this type of pride. We need to figure out the, the differences in the good and the bad. Paul says in Romans 12, we stopped here last week in Romans 12, 2. But Romans 12, 3 gives us the understanding of what renewing our mind in the gospel and what being transformed by the truth and by the spirit and by being mindful will do for us. The instruction comes, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now listen to this. Everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now see, I've just told you, church, that we ought to think of ourselves fairly highly in the spiritual sense. Because of whose we are, because of what we've been granted, because of what we've been given, because of the power of God and his love for us. We are special people. But isn't that what it... Isn't that the bad side of pride too? Oh, I'm special. Who are you talking to? I won't eat pool food. I mean, you know, stuff like that for those who get the reference. There's always this haughtiness even when we are in a place of height. Yet Jesus would say to his disciples when... The mothers of these boys, and I emphasize boys, 
came and said, can my sons sit at your left and right? Can our sons sit? Oh, dearly beloved, your sons cannot sit except they take and drink of the cup that I shall drink and carry the burden that I shall carry. And indeed they will. But let me tell you this, that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the least. And the least is the greatest. So our bad pride would say, I'm going to be the least. I'm going to show them how great I am. <laughs> you can't escape it. It's like, golly, you just put on one roller skate and a rubber boot and just spin around. Because that's what we do when we're trying to effectuate this stuff in our own lives. When we're trying to make our spiritual lives, you know, nourishing. Perfecting it on our own. What a, what a funny video that would be. If our exterior bodies mimic the internal chaos. It would make Picasso look in order. Do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, with discernment, with discrimination concerning oneself to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Good pride can be referred to as healthy self-esteem or healthy self-worth. I remember the first time I said that. When some older men in the room pulled me aside later, you know that self-esteem stuff, satanic. If it's selfish, self-worth, you know, you need to back up with that stuff. You know what I did? I listened to them. I listened to them. And I fought. I fought. Not pride. Living. Existing. Freedom of thought. Freedom of speech. Freedom of engagement. What do you do? For how long? My entire adult life. Until this year. Has been encompassed, sealed, surrendered, fueled, channeled, directed by some sense of unconscious fear. And as I said to myself just about six days ago, James, you have been pathetic, worthy of pity. Beloved, don't go there. And people that want to rob you of the joy and the fulfilled life that Christ has promised you, that's your choice. It's your choice to read the Bible in its context. Or to go out and find someone who agrees with something that you want to know for truth and then find every debate and argument that makes it work. Welcome to the PhD program. That's what we do. And then you go and you do whatever you can to stick to that until the day you die. Statisticians. Right? You can create a stat for anything. For the common man. 
And I can change your entire worldview with a four-inch by four-inch square on Facebook. In 2027, or in 1927, Jingerheimer Schmitz was born into Chicago, and ever since that year, it's been wrought with violence. That's stupid. That has nothing to do with the violence there. You know, Arminians and Calvinisms and all these other things, and all this debate, this is false correlations. These, these, but we fall for it. There's nothing like numbers. If you ever played Boulder Dash at my house, it's a game we love to play, but we haven't played it in years. Love to, Robin can always tell when I'm lying because I have really good stats or numbers or figures. The kid's like, yeah, that's the answer. I win, but she doesn't vote for my answer. Then I have to play differently. Listen to the word. Judge my words by what you read, not by what you search out. Judge my truth by what God has revealed to you, not because of someone else who's passionate and zealous and a little bit angry and a little bit pressuring. You know one good way to know you're being manipulated? When you're pressured to believe anything. I've gotten back on Twitter in the last six weeks. Sort of a nightmare of sorts. And I've, I've lost like 3,000 followers in three weeks. It's awesome. Because I'm pushing back on this. If you're a Christian, then you'll fill in the blank. Only Christians would, you know. Only a heretic will. Okay. I don't know what mall you shop in, but I don't even like the parking lot. I'm not even driving by that thing. Shut it down like the rest of malls. Not doing it. That's not how we live free in the Christian life. That's not how we come about understanding joy and love and freedom. We have to have hard conversations sometimes as a people and realize that while we may be focusing on something that is good to us, it may be damaging a whole lot of other people. And anything we do that damages somebody... We need to take inventory. If you want that inventory update, I don't have time to give it to you. A good reflection of good pride would be found in the context of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 14, who says, I praise you. Not a from an exaggerated sense of self-worth and importance and arrogance and selfishness and disregard for others. See, that's, you see where I'm going, right? But the psalmist says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Very well. We reflect the image of God. We reflect, especially as believers, the image of Christ, the mind of Christ that we've already seen in Philippians 2. We are to understand, just as Brother Queller prayed this morning, we are to love one another and be known by that. And the Bible doesn't say that loving one another is keeping it real and telling it like it is. That's not love. There's nowhere in the good report that says, if you don't change your life, you're going to burn in hell. That's not there. 
Stephen Jackson in agreement. Look at him. <laughs> it's just not there. And I, I loathe the fact that I have stated stuff like that in my younger days, and I loathe the fact that I've been pressed into some of those things because no matter what you do to change your life, it will not grant you righteousness. Nothing you do will grant you righteousness. But because by the mercy of God we have been counted righteous in the death and the resurrection of Christ, by God we ought to love somebody, especially those that don't look like us or act like us or think like us or feel like us. We've gotten it wrong, haven't we? And then we've turned our nose up at the non-gospel, false gospel people. Okay, fair enough, that's not the truth. We mark it as it is. Let it go, it's not our problem. But you know what a lot of these people get right? Living like Christ lives in the culture. But they're devoid, devoid of, the, of the basics of God's glory. The revelation of God as a savior, as a redeemer. As a lover. Read Ecclesiastes. And put your Christological glasses on. And then go, ooh. The right side of pride involves recognizing and appreciating the qualities and talents that we've been given. That enable us to serve. And to love. And to glorify God effectively. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And at the same mouth, I hate this about me. I'm a nothing. I'm a piece of trash. No, you're not. You're not a piece of trash. And I was, I was taught differently in my youth. Because somewhere along the line, that changed. Because I listened to the world that I thought was the church. And didn't even know I was listening. And my family in the room, they can, they can tell you. We were taught in our early days, you're a child of the king, stand up. You don't have to have that attitude. You don't have to do those things. You're not bound to that. Stand up, stand tall. Walk bold before the throne of grace. We heard that stuff regularly. How do you come to that place when you recognize just how duped you've been? And yes, you've been hearing this for a while now, but it is important to me because it is important. Let me say that again. It is important to me because it is important. And I think we need to keep what is most important, important to us. You know what else is important to me? My family. You know what else? You. You know what else? The people in our community. You know whose responsibility it is to make them all happy? Not mine. <laughs> but it is my responsibility to not add to their shame. It is my responsibility not to add to their brokenness. It is my responsibility not to create a culture or an environment or an essence or a presence. And man, I'm fighting this right now personally. Just because of what I am. Pastor. It elicits all sorts of walls. I don't want what I am as a believer to be a stumbling block. <clears throat> the 
pride that is self-exalting is not good. And it creates a pitfall of self-exaltation. Everyone who is arrogant, Proverbs 16.5, in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. I don't, I don't like the Proverbs sometimes because there's no context there to really say, okay, let's parse this out. The next thing says, tie your shoes so you don't trip and break your teeth. I mean, you know, you just don't know. It's not like there's a lot of explanation, but we have the New Testament letters. We understand the essence of this humility. We understand the essence of what self-centeredness is and contemptness, and, and, excuse me, and contempt for others versus contentedness and care and comfort. Bad pride emerges when we prioritize our own desires, our own accomplishments, and our own status above God and above others. It leads to self-centeredness, contempt for others, and inflated sense of superiority, which are contrary to, honestly, everything the Spirit says He is. Humility, love, gentleness, kindness, patience. And I added one with my kids, quietness, calmness, sweetness. But genuine, authentic Christian living. So how how do we cultivate this? How do we cultivate? Well, if we cultivate this in our life, we have to take, take note that what I've talked about, we are often misled by. We are in this crazy whirlwind, of this one-legged roller skate type thing. But Galatians, Paul says, let each one test his own work. You notice when the time it says, test yourself, see you're in the faith, test your own work. These are not things that help you know that you have been born of God. These are not things that give you assurance that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for your righteousness. These are things that help you live free and authentic in the world that we live in, which every turn tells us that there's something else wrong, some other problem, some other disease, some other disaster, some other thing. And, beloved, what's crazy about it is that we are focusing on so many really important or bad things that we are missing the most important bad things. We are missing the fact that people are treated with disdain and marginalized and hated in the name of Christ. We are missing the fact that we have formed a cultural arrogance in the name of Christ, who is the epitome of humility. And this is going to be hard for us. It's going to be, some of you may decide, you know what, I can't walk with Tippins anymore. I'm fine with that because I'm not changing. I will not be forced to be quiet about the truth of God's love by any imposition except the full context of something in the Bible. You don't give me 15 pretexts and tell me that's an argument worth following. I'm not going to do it. It's an argument worth listening to and maybe even saying, yes, that's good. But the application needs to be slow. Before we bind one another's conscience and bind the culture to a way of living and the way of loving that is hate. The example of Jesus in the New Testament, the gospel accounts. That's why I just tell people constantly, just read the gospels, especially the gospel of John. Just read it over and over and over again. Read it every day. Read it as often as you can. Keep reading it. And I'll get to this in a minute, but I I have to say it now. (laughs) 
Nowhere in Jesus' ministry did we ever see him act the way that Christians in the culture act toward people who are definitely living a life that is unpleasing or sinful. Jesus, I want to just be just plain and simple here. I was about to be funny. Jesus just simply put his foot down with religious people. Sorry, I don't want to give much flair. He just put his foot down. He's like, you know what, all you self-righteous people? You're a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of dogs. And he didn't say it spitting and snarling and putting his finger in their face and kicking dirt. He said, you're just a bunch of dogs. You're whitewashed tombs. You eaten in a bowl with bugs in it, but you washed the outside so it looked clean. You are workers of iniquity. Now that's tough. So if Jesus in like manner were in America, and that would be the time of fulfillment that he would come into the world and start his ministry, he'd be talking to people in my position who would be standing together with a coalition who'd be standing together as evangelicals, who'd be standing together as Baptists, who'd be standing together as reformers. And I'm not throwing all of those labels under the bus. And that, I'm just saying that would be from the people that Jesus would put his foot down with would come from those groups and many, many more. And then we'd point the long finger of judgment into the face of sin. Thus saith God, you know, when God has five syllables, you know it's authoritative. Yeah. I used to do that as a joke, and then it became almost habitual every time I'd say God. Pitfall of self-exaltation, an abomination to the Lord. And so, beloved, I don't, I don't want us just to fight the idea of, like, self-pride. I want us to fight the idea of spiritual pride. I want us as a family, as a spiritual family, as a church, as a congregation to fight spiritual pride in every avenue. I want us to pause and swallow and breathe and think. And I want us to take six days before we say something about anything that flusters us. And I want us to take six more days before we think about thinking about it. And I want us to take six more days before we put anything on social media. And then another six days before we even investigate on what we need to do, if anything, and then by that time, we'll be on something else. And we'll be constantly in this perpetual six-day evaluation of doing nothing with it. Like I said, that bad pride leads to self-centeredness and contempt. An inflated sense of superiority. So we cultivate it by testing our own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. Galatians 6, 4, and 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, there's a context there, and we know what it is, for those of us who have read it. But we're not to be worried about all the works and doings of each other as much as we are all the works and doings of ourselves. Let's look and see if we're serving effectively, if we're living effectively. And then we can say, okay, you know what? I'm carrying my load. 
Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up to present her blameless and spotless. Love your wives, for no one hates his own body. Love your wives as your own body. You keep your body healthy, you keep your body clean, you keep your body loved, you keep your body tender, you keep, you know, I mean, we've got to learn what this looks like and that the picture of Christ and the church is, 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 is paramount and it's manifold, it's, it's displayed in every relationship to some degree. And we need to look to what we're carrying and what we're doing. Healthy pride involves acknowledging and celebrating our achievements, but with humility, recognizing that our abilities and accomplishments come from God. Jesus even says that in, Nicol in Nickelodeon, and, and, to Nicodemus. That's so funny. To Nicodemus in John 3, because I've made the joke Nick at night for so many years, it just came out. And he says, no one comes to the light because they love the darkness. And you know what this means. You've heard me teach it. The darkness that Jesus is speaking of is the superiority of the spiritual piety of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. The religious fervor and their theological attunement. And he says... They don't, it's you all, people like you, love this darkness. Love your prayers and your piety and your pompousness. And you love it. And you love to hold it over other people. And he's talking to probably the kindest man walking in that circle, Nicodemus. You know, he's the only one there. There were 70 of those guys in the ruling circle. Plus more rabbis. And yet he's the only one coming. But he speaks for them all, right? We know that you are the one come from God. Huh. And Jesus says, you can't see me nor enter into me unless you're born from above. Huh? No one comes to the light because their deeds are evil. And when they come to the light, it exposes their deeds. Beloved, oh my goodness, don't let this argument be caught catch you by the ankle and pull you into this confessional regeneration garbage that if you haven't come to the understanding of all your unbelieving false things, then you've never been born into the truth. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is saying your spiritual pride in any sense, Nicodemus, is exposed when you come to the simplicity of this ugly Nazarene who is not much to talk about. He says, but all who do come to the light, and here's the kick, do so that it may be clearly seen. What is it, what's clearly seen? Their spiritual passion, their study, their doctrinal perfection, that their works have been carried out by God. So what we are and what we accomplish is to be given credit to God. By attributing our successes and spiritual growth to God's grace, by using our talents to serve others, we strike a balance between self-assurance and humility. Beloved, I can play an instrument. 
and I can play a saxophone very, 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 very well. Could have had a career in it. No hand, no argument there. But I didn't play it for decades because I felt like that's just prideful. And some of you share that sentiment. Some of you are guitarists, some of you are vocalists, some of you dance, some of you... It's not sinful to embrace something that God has gifted you with and serve others with it. How do we serve them? I'm a dancer. How do I serve others? If you've never seen the beauty of a dancing body, you haven't opened your eyes. I weep when I watch dancing. I'm not talking about, you know, club dancing. I mean, you know, I'm talking about dancing. But even some of that is very impressive. I mean, I'm not going to knock it. It's like, okay. I can't do that. Touche. Skills, mad skills. Praise be to God. I mean, but isn't in being entertained, isn't enjoying things, is it wrong to hear Bach? Is it wrong to hear Beethoven? Is it wrong to hear country? Absolutely. That's for me and my house. We'll serve the Lord. Anyway, we can embrace what God has given us and our talents and our passions. And we can use them to serve us. What if it's just that we have a shared interest and we spend time together? Is that not service? See how, see how bad it's been? See how backward we've been? The humility of Jesus is the model for our lives. In several ways, we see the humility of Christ. We've already seen it. He emptied himself, the incarnation. I mean, here's the God of the cosmos coming into the world and becoming an infant. What is more pathetic than an infant? Nothing. It can do nothing. It will die if you leave it alone. Nothing. I mean, it's like a one-day-old bird. It's just nothing and I've always argued jokingly that they're so cute so we don't dispose of them yeah. I gotta send this somewhere else can they get a refund hmm. babies and children were ugly man we'd be packing them up Jesus set aside his divine privileges his divine prerogative set aside his glory to embrace the limitations of his humanity. He willingly became a slave and a servant so that he could identify with us. Not just in the experience of life, in every way. Jesus has felt every, listen to this, every emotion that's ever crossed your mind, he has had. Every fear, every doubt, Every frustration, every opportunity for rage, but yet he sinned not. And this identity then also carried him to the cross, that he could die, and he died in the place of his people. And this is profound humility. He also led and served by example. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Jesus demonstrated continually a heart to serve, to prioritize other people's needs. As important as his own. You notice that's not the, the, the Christian culture says, your needs aren't important. The word of God says your needs are important, but not more important than other people's needs. So tend to other people's needs as equally important as your own. And you know what's crazy? We can't meet every need that each other has. That's why we have to be many. Christ meets our needs through the plurality of the assembly. Somebody among us has what we need. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Why? Because they needed it. This wasn't some random, okay, guys, now we're going to stop for a second, do something we've never done. We're going to do something that's uh, completely countercultural. I want you to take off your shoes, oh, your sandals. You just slide them off. You see that nasty, gnarly feet? I want us to all line up. I'm going to take off all my clothes, and I'm going to cover up my privates with a towel, and I'm going to get down here, and I'm going to wash all of your feet. They weren't like, oh, no, feet washing, ooh. That would be what we do because it's not something we do. Most of you don't wash your hands before you eat anyway, so why would you wash your feet? Well, you'd wash your feet in the first century because you sat on the floor and your feet were there. I've eaten in homes that still practice that, and you definitely, not only do you not bring your shoes into the house because it tracks onto the dinner table, but you don't want your nasty feet sitting next to the food that someone else is eating. So washing feet was normal. What wasn't normal about that is that it was Jesus going to do the washing. You see? Matter of fact, a Jewish person could not wash the feet of another person. It was forbidden that even a slave or a criminal, if they were Jewish, was not allowed to wash feet. So he does it for them, and it blows their minds. Peter refuses, and he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. That's why a lot of churches, a lot of congregations, a lot of denominations look at foot washing as a third ordinance, like the Lord's table and baptism, something that they do on a regular basis. More power to them. I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong. I'm just going to say, not right for me. But Jesus washed their feet, something that he wasn't even allowed legally to do. Jesus ministered to the marginalized. Jesus reached out to the hated. Jesus spoke to who was culturally un, he was unable to speak to. Jesus surrounded himself. Listen to this. Jesus surrounded himself with people that the religious society went, look at these terrible people. Jesus obeyed the Father. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He submitted himself to the will of the Father completely to the point of enduring the cross. Take this cup, not my will, but yours be done. He stood up, wiped the blood from his face. Behold, my accuser comes, betrayed with a kiss. 
the irony. This humility of Christ, but yet, not only that, but when he interacted with others, the Son of Man, as we've seen, came to be served. He had compassion and humility. Listen to this word. He had respect, regardless of people's social status or their sinfulness. He didn't tell Zacchaeus, you thieving piece of trash, how dare you climb a tree to look. What do you think you're looking at? He said, come on down, I'm going to your house. We don't want to be caught driving through the liquor store drive through much less being at a house of somebody like, Nick, like, like uh, Zacchaeus. Isn't that weird? Who cares? You go buy the bottle of wine, you walk around the grocery store four times because you saw somebody from the church in there. You've done it. I've caught you. Look at that. Two bottles of wine. Wow. I'll put them on the prayer list. <laughs> pray, for jo- pray for Brother John. Unspoken. You know what that does? John, what's going on? What's going on? I don't know. Pastor saw you at the liquor store. Just go. I mean, I hang out at the liquor store. Did y'all know that? You see my truck down there? It's because he's a real good friend of mine. And I grew up in there. I grew up. That's where I started shooting pool at his house. It's just downhill from there. <laughs> and every now and then you might see him hand me a gun through the window. I mean, there's a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. Because he can't fix it himself. He needs me to fix it. Who cares? Here's what you do. And I'm really destroying this message. But it's funny. See somebody in there that's going to give you a hard time for what's in your buggy. Go put 40 of them in your buggy and follow them. Hey, what are you talking about? I'm thirsty. I mean, just put like 50 tubs of ice cream in there. I mean, whatever it is, something crazy. I've got friends that don't think we should eat bacon. Put a bunch of bacon in there. I'm joking. That would be prideful. It'd be funny, but it'd be prideful. We don't want to hurt other people's conscience with our liberties. It's a serious thing. But Jesus had respect. That's the point I'm getting to. But the religious world didn't have respect. And so Jesus, in his, out, his interaction with all these outcasts, with all these wicked people, with women, and with children, demonstrated his genuine love and humility. How dare he hang out with these people? How dare he hang out with a Samaritan woman? What was he thinking? Does he not know what could happen to him? They'll kill him for this. Yes, absolutely. And beloved, they'll kill us too. And it won't be physically, but it'll, it'll come close. When we don't fit the mold of the culture, of the religion that we live among, they will try to do everything they can to destroy us. So we must embrace humility as a core value in our relationship with other people, serving others selflessly without seeking personal recognition or praise. We need to surrender our will to the Lord's purposes and seek His wisdom in these matters while we treat everyone with respect dignity, and love, regardless of who they are, how they live. 
Because ultimately what we see in the gospel is that Christ personifies humility. He became the sacrifice. He was oppressed and it was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He willfully endured unimaginable suffering, unimaginable humiliation, offering himself as the Lamb of God. He is the perfect Lamb. John the Baptist, John 1, 29. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus referred to himself as the Lamb of God. He was blameless and sinless, but he was going to be a sacrifice. I mean, think about God's lamb. If God made the rules of, of an unblemished sacrifice, and we all never came close, we took the best we had, and if we didn't have that, we gave flour. You understand that, right? Flour was a substitute for a lamb if you couldn't afford a lamb. It's a symbol. There's no perfect lamb. But if God were to bring a lamb to you, it'd be perfect. He did. His name is Jesus. That's humility. And now we are his. That's a reason for pride. He's a mediator of grace. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He took on human flesh and mediates between God and man. He atoned for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boost. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Beloved, as we hear these words, as we take this very calm and focused teaching on pride and humility, let us learn those two lessons. Let us learn these two lessons. We have a reason to stand and be proud of who we are in Christ because it's not of our own doing. It's His Word. And because he humbled himself, we then also can humble ourselves in service to one another. And it is not easy. So we need each other in that venture. We need each other. Anyone that is an island unto themselves is dead. But we need to make sure that we are also resting in the work. We're resting. We're not trying to get it right. We're not trying to be perfectly humbly proud and proudfully humble. We're not trying to get it all correct. We're not trying to get all the love right and the service right. Just do what you can today. And if you can't do tomorrow, pick up the meal from where you left it. Take snack-sized bites every moment you can to live in the faith. And quit trying to hoard an entire pantry full of good living and loving and service. It doesn't work. You know what it makes me do? Forget it. I can't do it. It's going to bah humbug my way to nowhere. Self-deprecate. Passive aggressiveness. Frustration. No prayers. And if they are, they're all imprecatory. Your prayer list is real long when you start praying like that. 
It's like your block list on Facebook. It's your imprecatory prayer list. If you want to be humble about it, God bless them. Bless their souls. Stop. We aren't going to get it right. But can we get it right for five minutes? Can we do it right Thursday? Can we get it right Saturday morning? Can we get the presentation? Where, oh, oh man, I could have served there. Let me just go do it. Don't let me cower and, and grovel or feign. Let me just do it. Let me just say to myself, I can serve him. Because you might not be able to tomorrow. And beloved, when you are loved truly and when you are served truly, thank God for it. And thank those who do it because the next day it might not be there. Marriage, hey, you know how that works. Children, oh my gosh. That's a one-way street sometimes. For a long time. But because of Christ, it was a one-way street. And it's still a one-way street. Christ came for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He lives for us. Let us live for Him. Let's pray. Father, may you erase the error that might have come from my mouth this morning. Would you make it clear that as I even debate presently that implications must be guarded, guard my own. Father, do not let pride stand in the way of truth and patience and love. We thank you for softening us. We thank you for teaching us. We thank you for giving us caring hearts that don't jump with emotion, but Lord, that we arrest those things that we might serve intentionally and actively, loving each other as Christ loved. And even when we feel deeply things that we don't even understand. Lord, we are not bound to be controlled, but we are free to live and to love and to express thankfulness because of your grace. So as we take this table today, Lord, I pray that we will be reminded of the humility of Christ and knowing that we are able to stand bold before your throne because of who he is and what he's done for us. In his name, amen.